2: So
3: now please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Daniel Dawling and Kate Pitt.
4: Thanks so much and thank you all for being here this evening. It is a wild and windy night out there so um, thank you all for braving the elements to come and, and spend some time with us tonight. I've known Danny for ages um, and always enjoy spending time with him but i was I was really struck by something he wrote in the acknowledgments of his most recent book, where he said he had finally wanted to get this off his chest you know get get this out there um wanting to talk about inequality in the one percent and and get it done and get it said so would you just spend a, a few minutes telling us what it was you really wanted to get off your chest?
5: Why, why do this book? Um, I, I was asked to do this book. This is why you end up producing quite a lot of books, is because people ask you, because things are, are in vogue. But I I wanted to write about the 1% in particular for, for two reasons. Uh, the first reason is, is I was lucky. I got to read Richard and Kate's book when it was in draft because they gave it out to several people partly because they they thought, I think, they thought this can't be true. It's too, you know, it's too remarkable to be true. And they gave it out to people to try to find errors in it. Um, and one thing I noticed then was they looked at the ratio of the best-off fifth in society to the worst-off fifth in society and how that correlated with so many social ills. And I thought I then but didn't say anything that ratio is particularly influenced by the 1%. When the 1% get a lot, the top fifth tend to get a lot. Mostly because the 1% are actually taking most of that, but people just beneath them argue and get much more than those just beneath them in other countries. And so if, if you like, The Spirit Level, in a way was a book a bit about the 1%. If you can control the 1% if you can get the 1% to take a normal share of income by definition everybody beneath them has to take a bit less and you've actually reduced that overall ratio it's much harder to get incomes down or actually up at the very bottom uh, than it is to get them uh, down or up at the very top and the second reason is is a very boring academic one I'd written a paper in the Journal of the Royal Statistical Society In January 2013, which essentially said that the new cleavage was between the 1% and the 99%, uh, Occupy just did happen to hit on the correct slogan. Um, If you look at the last century of inequality, we were incredibly unequal just around about the time the Titanic sank, around about 1913. The top 1% took 25% of all income. The rest of the top 10% took a large amount of the rest. And then that came down. It came down in judders and fits and starts, but it came down all the way from 1913 to around about 1978. The 1% ended up with just 6% of all income, or 4% after tax by 1978. And the rest of the 9%, not with very much. We were most equal then. And then inequality began to rise, and the one percent did really well under Margaret Thatcher. But but the but the rest of the uh, top ten percent also did pretty well. They saw their average incomes rise from this, I did warn you, this was a paper in the Journal of Royal Statistical Society. So I will try not to do okay. The rest the rest of the top ten percent saw their incomes rise from two and a half times the average in nineteen seventy nine to three times the average by the time Maggie uh, left power, they were rewarded um, they didn't do as well as the 1% but they went up um, under new labour the 1% actually took as much extra income as, as they'd had in 1979 that was their jump under, under new labour But then something really remarkable happened in 2008 after 2008 with the exception of one year the 1% carried on going up but for the first time in 100 years the 9% beneath them no longer followed them We've had this coming together of the 99% of us and it looks like a new cleavage. Before 2008 it it was the 10% versus the rest. Um, And in a way you can win when 10% of people are being uh, rewarded. If, to put it very crudely, you're the Conservative Party. 10% of people are are doing better. You can convince another 20% that they might get into that group. You've got 30% of the electorate or more in the bag. What what you do after 2008 is much harder because no longer are the 9% actually gaining. Uh, the 1% are and government policies are helping them. So the 1% and only the 1% had their taxes reduced. Um, but those just beneath demand And, and that's, that's new and that requires ex- explaining. And you have to say to people, I think, how much are you going to be duped? we're now in a new era you're told there's no alternative but it's a new era in which if your children can't get into the top 1% they're going to be part of a group which is coming together but on average which is also getting poorer and partly because the so-called wealth creators are taking more and more of the wealth and income.
4: We're in a really strange situation aren't we? Um, We're in a situation where our government is telling us that they are doing the best thing for us. Yeah. They are reducing the deficit. They are um, trying to promote economic growth. And yet we know that couples with children are going to be 4%... Uh, so Sorry, couples without children who are poor are going to be 4% worse off. Couples who have children are going to be 9% worse off. Couples who are... Uh, Parents who are lone parents are going to be 14% worse off. So we're getting a lot of rhetoric about everything's going to be fine and yet we're seeing quite clearly <coughs> people who are the most vulnerable are going to be left worse off. I mean, what's, go- what's going on there? How are we being so hoodwinked by the uh, rhetoric of the government at the
5: moment? I, I think we're partly being... Hoodwink because they believe this i mean that it's they're not sitting there cunningly saying you know this will help us and a few of our mates but the rest of society are going to go to the wall because of what we're doing they genuinely think this is good this is the best way the only way um leave people at the top alone give them more of their money and they will create more britain will become great again the banking system will end up having a good reputation again and there is no other option, there's no other way. I, I think we're partly being hoodwinked, because the people hoodwinking us genuinely believe the story they're telling us. I think they also find it quite difficult to understand what is happening in other parts of society because if you are in the 1% and the majority of the government, the majority of ministers are, it's difficult to have much empathy for other people because it's easier to have empathy if you've actually gone through it yourself so that minister the government minister who resigned because he wanted to see more of his children uh, because he claimed on the minister's salary he couldn't afford to live in central london for other ministers who are a bit more family money i think they could probably just about get where he was coming from but if you're up there that's the kind of person you can empathize with you know another one of you who's pretty well off but not quite as well off Understanding that the average family on an income of, say, twenty-five to £30,000 pounds actually live on that is really difficult if you're in the 1% because your minimum income is £160,000 pounds a year. Your average income is £300,000 pounds a year. It's similar for us in this room thinking about how you live in Sierra Leone before Ebola. How do you get through the day? What do you do? How do you plan when your money is that much less? and that's what it's like for people at the top of british society um so you know when they see these figures that's when they come out with or if you only budgeted better you'd be able to eat or nobody needs to go to a food bank if they probably looked after the money all charities should stick to their knitting um they're knitting willy warmers now by the way uh, for that (laughs) stick to their knitting Uh, rather than involve themselves in the reasons why their charitable services are needed more Um, I I generally don't think it is that malicious Um, even George Osborne Uh, I think George thinks this is a sensible way to behave and we have to tighten our belts because we have less but we can't tighten the belts of the wealth creators because they create wealth he's been told that story all his life he believes that story so,
4: could we explore that a bit more? Why is it that people who are extremely wealthy today believe their own story, and and how do we get around that? How do we?
5: How do we cope with it? Yeah. Um, well, the problem is they have been getting wealthier, relatively. I mean, they're pretty wealthy, absolutely poor, but relatively, for over three decades. And so the idea that you get wealthier because you've done something deserving that money can become stronger and stronger built in. You hear endless stories about how people with lots of money invent things or create things. And then you look around for examples of of who it is, and it's always Mr. Dyson uh, and a vacuum cleaner. Uh, And nobody ever says that we managed to invent vacuum cleaners before without the person who invented the vacuum cleaner becoming That rich, and there's only Mr. Dyson amongst the super rich who actually has invented anything. There, there is an ethos about ability that has become stronger and stronger in this country since the 1970s and the 1980s, and that is that some people are more able than others, and because some people are more able than others, you have to pay them more for their supposedly great talents. Uh, Other people are work shy. And almost only by paying them less or getting their benefits low enough can you actually get them to go out of bed. That way of thinking has strengthened as we've become more unequal, and I think that's part of the reason and you could also you can get more personal about it I and mean, i I talk about this in the book, but I haven't done the analysis. He says for me he's an academic, but if you were sent to a school from the age of eleven or the age of thirteen, which costs thirty five or fifty thousand pounds a year. Either you tell yourself that it's good that some children are sent to schools which cost that much because some children are particularly able and they need to have that potential drawn out of them by having far more teachers per child and so on, and you go on to do great things as a public servant and become prime minister, or you have to tell yourself that your family's life and beliefs and your friends' lives and beliefs and the ethos of your school – and everything else you've been socialised into since you were three or four years old is wrong. Now there are people who do that, who do say it's all wrong, um, but they don't become <coughs> leading politicians in the Conservative Party. Um, and i I've got I've I've got a lot of sympathy for the rich. I i I think I think you can see how you can come. To hold these views how these views become, become reinforced you get a sort of set of people around you who tell you how great you are um, it's not easy keeping your job with people with a lot of money if you don't tell them that they're great but you get a lot of syncopy up to the top I mean I sort of Tony Blair Tony Blair spent all his days with people smiling at him I think he came into office relatively um, normal Um and I think any of us, I think any of us put in that situation where day after day you're told how important you are, and people are smiling and grinning at you endlessly, until the day, I only met Tony Blair once, I met him on the day he had to resign, and suddenly he looked like a short little man who wasn't very happy, and you, you don't, you haven't seen that kind of image of Tony Blair before or after. Um so I think there's that problem. Now, if, if you've already started off with a pretty privileged background anyway, for some of our politicians in the past who did a better job, I think they might have been helped by the fact that at least a large amount of their life had not been like that, so that when that began, it didn't change them as much.
4: Mm. You talk about um, the sort of myth of um, people should be paid the most to get the most.
5: Yes. Yes. So
4: so can we explore that a bit? You know, how good are the people at the top who are getting these huge, huge salaries? What are they doing for us?
5: That that is so great. One problem is that that one way in which we we measure productivity is we actually use salaries to measure it. Uh, uh, (laughs) We we have a way of doing national accounts for GDP that doesn't require this, but as soon as you see the GDP figures, by re- GDP figures by region, they actually start to, ONS start to use salaries. So you're told that London is the most productive region of the country. And that's largely based on the fact that Londoners pay themselves and are in a powerful position to pay themselves more. And, they, and then they have to pay themselves more because the house prices inflate. So that if you're not paid that much, you can't possibly live here. Uh, you get different stories in different countries. The most famous one which is always passed around is the the boss of Royal Dutch Shell when the boss was in the Netherlands uh, saying if you paid me half as much I wouldn't work any less, if you paid me twice as much I wouldn't work any more you never get these kind of quotes from a British business leader you you even get a couple in America we are very odd our our 1% take 15% of all income, that's the highest share of anywhere in Europe our bottom fifth are the poorest in Western Europe, our middle, our median is going down, that the median household in this country has a lower income than the median household in France and Germany. And their housing costs are much, much less. So put down the housing costs. Think the middle household is getting less. And just being average in this country is so much harder than being average in France and Germany. And we're supposed to be full of wealth creators. So if we're full of wealth creators, how come the middle household isn't doing that well?
4: Mm. I mean, in, in my field of public health, we so often look to the U.S. for solutions um, to, to to problems. And actually, they're the country that work, does worse than yeah. us. Um, why Why don't we look to the countries that do better? Why are we so... Enthrall to yeah. looking at the u s for policy solutions oh
5: yeah and, and it 's all our leading politicians, um, you know Gordon Brown used to head off to Cape Cod on holiday every year, um, so this isn 't just a thing on, on the right of british politics it 's also on the left. Um, we try to pretend we 're not in europe <laughs> um, yeah, and now why yeah, now, why did we try to pretend we 're not in Europe? I, I think if you're trying to give excuses as, as about why did Britain in the 1970s take one direction and other European countries largely took another, they still in, in the main saw a little rise in inequality, but not much. The Netherlands has actually gone down. Yeah. The 1% in Netherlands take less than half as much. Switzerland, they take less than half as much as in Britain. And they've got bankers. So, so why, why did we do that? One explanation is that we were the most powerful country on earth 100 years ago. And it is quite difficult adjusting to becoming a normal European country. And one reaction to becoming a normal European country, which is what was slowly happening to Britain, uh, was to, to stop looking at Europe in the late 1970s, having joined in the middle 1970s, to talk about pushing the Great back into Britain again, and looking at the Atlantic and talking about wanting to get back to what we had been and, and all the kind of winning the global race rhetoric, you know, as it, as if international politics is like playing sport on the sports field. Um, I think that is a reaction to a desire amongst a large group of people, not to lose that kind of power and dominance that we had a hundred years ago. If you, go back to signs of this the best sign i could see was in the, the second 1974 election there was an election in february and it was so close there had to be another election in october we could have this again by the way so it's worth thinking about in october 1974 there was a massive swing to the conservatives in the southeast of england absolutely massive swing a swing we hadn't seen before it was not enough for them to win the election but the electorate in the southeast london a bit more weakly, but in the home counties had just had enough they'd had enough of the miners they'd had enough of the poor they'd had enough of the north and and they swung the conservatives now the home counties are partly called the home counties because it's where you come home to after spending your life in the empire and britain retracting to being a normal country was most shocking for the home counties for surrey and for people doing well in places like Oxfordshire, and that group moved their votes first. The year after, the Conservatives elected a new leader or didn't elect. They do a weird thing, don't they? Well, they did. Um, The 79 election follows. Um, But I think there was a reaction to not adjusting to becoming normal. And this is partly an excuse for the USA and for the UK. Inequality is incredibly expensive. It's very, very expensive in the USA for the top 1% to get over 20% of all income. You have to have a lot of money coming in to be able to afford that. You can do that if you're the world power. We could do it much more easily when we were the world power. But if you're trying to explain why the UK and the USA so odd, that's one reason. And the opposite two countries, two countries with incredible levels of inequality and very efficient social arrangements are Japan and Germany. And the key thing that happened to Japan and Germany is that they both lost a war, which is the fastest way to become more equal. Um, and it, in a sense, it wasn't... The Japanese or the Germans, through their own ingenuity, it was our ingenuity. Oh, and partly the Russians coming in halfway and blocking Berlin. Uh, But in Japan, the Americans, because they are so afraid of revolution, took the land off the aristocracy and distributed it as evenly as they could. It's an incredible natural experiment in what happens if you make people more, more equal. And it resulted in the biggest rise in life expectancy on the planet and the highest life expectancy and a 90% middle class in Japan, which in a sense is a 90% working class. It's the same thing once it's 90%. Um, and I think it's when you, when you look at it like that, it's easier to understand why we are where we are, although we are in an awful mess. There's a good chance in two years' time we'll vote to leave Europe. It could be the kind of thing that brings on a crisis that actually eventually makes us more equal faster. You know, I'm an eternal optimist on these, um, but it's not hard being a declining s- superpower uh the country before us was the Netherlands. Uh, Amsterdam was the most rich city in the world. The United Provinces were the place in the world before we became the most powerful place, and they didn't have an easy time adjusting uh, downwards. But look at the Netherlands now uh, they're the tallest people on earth, some of the healthiest people on earth, and their one percent take six point seven percent of all income um the correlations between things going well in a rich country and the 1% not taking that much are very very strong
4: can we can we talk a little bit about how you view the 1% i mean i think i think your book is quite funny yeah. at different points <laughs> about um how problematic the attitudes of the 1% are and and you said earlier you've got quite some sympathy for them because they've been raised in a way to think that they're they're, they're very special um it can we explore a bit more in what ways are they odd different.
5: okay um, and different different i should say
4: um and and in what ways is that a real block
5: right.
4: to us okay. changing okay. things a couple of
5: caveats not i mean there will be at least one or two members of the 1%. I've done 12 talks like this, and as yet nobody's outed themselves as, as being in the 1%. Um, if you've got a household income of 160000 and no kids, between probably two of you, you're in it. If you've got a couple of kids, you need about £220,000 a year, then you're in the 1%. Uh, they're always, by definition, is the 1%. The 1% were less odd when they had less, partly because they were much more like the groups beneath them. Um. If you take schooling, our top public and private schools in the 1970s were not that worried about exam results. Um, You could be good at sport. Or if you uh, were not that good at exams, you could go into the guards. If you're a girl, you could marry well. In fact, the idea that you go to university as a girl was an anathema in the 1970s. That's all changed. The top public schools, it's now about A-stars. If you're slightly disappointing, it's my favourite word of the 1%, just look out for the word disappointing. And When somebody tells you at the top they're disappointed in you, it means they're really, really angry.
0: <laughs> if, you're,
5: if you're slightly disappointed, you get a B at A levels. And, so you, and that's part of the reason for Sympathy of the 1%. And, of course, as you gear up the schools to become these kind of exam factories to force these results out of almost every child at the top, you're changing the beliefs and nature of, of those children. If you compare our 1% to the Japanese 1%, uh, there are huge uh, social and cultural differences. It's very hard, I'm told. I must admit I cannot speak Japanese, and even if I could, I'd never get to the level to be able to say this. But it's extremely hard to tell from the accent of somebody in the top 1% in Japan that they're in the top 1%. Um, I had a translator when I was last in Japan who was from the school Twin with private school in Japan, which is Um Nobody battered an eyelid, as she translated she was seen as lowly because she was young and female, um, and that you know. Well, <laughs> Japan's no utopia, <laughs> but um, the people become divorced, and so they end up saying silly things. The one percent have become clever in recent years about covering it up. You will constantly see the one percent discussing the papers on TV, News Twenty Four, Sky. You know that when they when they get the papers out. Maybe you've got better lives than me, but for some reason I always end up watching telly then. And very often the commentator is in the 1%. Uh, they are sending their children to an expensive <coughs> private school, not just a private school, but they know well enough not to mention that because they've got an idea of who's watching the telly and what they do. It slips out occasionally when you hear a government minister talk about people with mortgages as a group beneath them. Because if you're truly in the 1%, a mortgage is what poor people have to take out. Because if you looked after your finances properly, you simply buy property with ready cash. Um, and it's it's those kind of things that become more common as this group moves away. But the very last caveat that's really important caveat to say there is more inequality within the one yeah. percent than there is in the other ninety nine percent. if you look at London. And look at this: the Sunday Times rich list. There are about almost 500 families out of the 1,000 are in London. Uh, Ten of them have a quarter of the wealth of the entire super-rich in London. Thirteen, if you add just three more families, have a third. So if you're in the super-rich, the very richest people in Britain, if you're not in the top 10 or 13, it's very easy to feel you don't have that much. Uh, it's remarkably easy if you're a household on 160,000 a year without kids, there's a couple of you to feel you're not well off in London because the average house is half a million and you will need a mortgage and probably some help from mum or dad. Um, so it's hard for the 1% to understand what's happening in the rest of society. But also when ever I have talked to people in this group, they are usually very unaware that they're in the group and they often talk about their problems of getting by now the people just beneath the one percent are much more magnanimous ONS has released some data about people's financial problems by income and the group just beneath the one percent report hardly any financial problems at all because they know they don't have financial problems compared to most people but the one percent are much more divorced from that and have a higher rate of saying that money's a problem
4: you know mostly when when people talk about what matters to them, they don't actually talk about money um most people if if asked say that the things that are most important to them are spending time with friends and family um and there's also this sort of um truism that you know nobody is on their deathbed and says, "I wish I'd spent more time at the office." But I suspect that might not be true for the 1%. That maybe, maybe they would, would say on their death, but I wish I'd spent more time at the office. Because they're not actually engaged in spending time with family and friends. They are driven by, by something different. Yeah. So are the rich different to you and me? They, they have different goals, they have different life aims, and are they unwell?
5: Actually. Oh, they're well. um, There's a lovely book in, published in 1968 called Are the Rich Different? And what the author of that book never realised was that he was writing at a time in America where the rich had never actually had less and were more like everybody else, but he was writing about how, how they were different. There's an advert on the tube at the moment, I saw it today, mm. uh, about last minute, last minute holidays, last minute hotel bookings. And there's a series of things you might want to do, a city baker or whatever, or take the kids somewhere. And then it goes, yes. well, maybe you'd have more fun without your kids. Yes, I
4: saw uh, that. No. And
5: whoever, whoever <laughs> in the advertising agency thought it would be a good idea to put an advert on Tube Train saying you'd have more fun away from the kids. I mean, there's a huge number of people in London who can't have kids, who desperately want to have kids. So it's a pretty unsubtle advert uh, for a start. But the number of people who've got enough money to be able to fly away on holiday and leave their children behind. Um, and I think that you see signs like that that advert it's, it's a last minute website advert just simply can't be well, well except maybe the only people who can afford to suddenly decide to book a hotel at the last minute are people in that group. Um, there are a group of men, in particular it tends to be men, who become very rich quite quick, who are Obsessed by money, uh, they're often the eldest male member of some of these very rich families. Quite often nowadays, coming from Russia, and they tend to be particularly driven by greed. Um, and I suspect on their deathbeds, I would be surprised if if they say this. Robert Peston, now the BBC's economics editor, I think mm-hmm. he was business. Mm-hmm. Robert Peston wrote a brilliant book about who runs Britain. Uh, and uh, because he was the BBC editor nobody sued him and it, and it it goes through for some of our top business leaders some of the horrible things that happened to them as children which he's trying to explain why were they so driven and why they continue to be um, so driven so the, so the person who amasses the money tends to be like that and, and there's been lots of studies uh, interestingly centred around uh, Dutch colleagues in Amsterdam who do these <clears throat> Uh, suggesting that amongst the 1%, people are much less likely to be pro-social. Most of us are pro-social. So you have to explain what pro-social you know. We we worry about other people. We would worry about standing on the necks of other people to push ourselves up. We have empathy, and we can understand other people's pains. We feel it. Um, We're not narcissistic in our nature. Although you worry about this when you're sitting at the front with a microphone talking to a lot of people being very quiet about how you might be. Um, The... Some people are are very unprosocial, and they are found much more common amongst people at the top of business and men in prison. They're, those are the two lo- locations uh, where they're found. So there is some evidence for some of the rich. The really nice thing about this is that their children and their grandchildren uh, tend not to be like this. Um, so when you look at rich families from 100 years ago you'll see that the wealth almost always dissipates and goes away not always you can go back and see particular families um, but in in general there isn't a greedy gene doesn't that gets passed down um, and there also isn't a super able gene because there's also a theory amongst the one percent uh, best written in dominic cummins kind of phd thesis dominic was up as gove's advisor who had to resign because he couldn't keep his mouth shut about his views. And Dominic Cummings produced a thesis on the web about ability. It's available still, I think, uh, where he has a whole set about how the 1% have superior genes and are naturally more able. And that's why they should be getting more. And he was the main advisor to the Secretary of State for Education in this country. Um, so if you're, if you're trying to see why it's so hard to change things in this country and also what you're, often up against uh, there are a small group of people who do think inequality is good the 1% don't yet have enough uh, the rest of us really are lucky to be here and should be looked after but some of us are only worth £2 an hour that kind of thing
2: hmm.
4: Danny you, you write so much and you know you're, you, you're extremely productive and um, And when you do produce a new book, it does get attention um, in the media, particularly from newspapers like The Guardian. Have you reached the parts of the media um, that you would wish to, to actually get your message across more widely? And if not why not? And what what could we do to sort of overcome the media blockades to us, educating yeah. the population about the problems of inequality?
5: Yeah, all, all learning ourselves. Um, the housing book was interesting on this. It's, I wrote this book, I don't know if it's there, called All That Is Solid. Uh, the Guardian hated it. So it's the first time <laughs> in my life I had a bad Guardian. Uh, and the observer didn't... Oh, no, that was Nick. He did like it. Um, <laughs> Nick Cohen. Um But The Guardian didn't like it. Quite a lot of left-wing press didn't like it because I wasn't advocating the mass building of council estates again, which has been a long campaign. The Telegraph gave it five stars. Absolutely shocked. Um, The Spectator liked it. And the reason that they liked it was because I was talking about housing. And I was talking about the problems of getting yourself housed in London and how high the rents were in London, even if you were a great success in other words, a young spectator or Telegraph reporter. Or how high the mortgage was, if in your 40s you just managed to buy, even though interest rates are low, the mortgage is astronomical. In other words, if you're a 40-year-old spectator journalist or a 40-year-old sub-editor in the Telegraph. Not that I had one in mind. Um, and when you don't make it explicit, about inequality and about the 1%, but you talk about the outcomes. Um, Melissa Ben wrote an interesting book about schools where mm. she found the most upset group were mums sending their kids to slightly mediocre private schools who felt they had to do it. But they're the angriest group in Britain about the state of, of education. I think we need to do more of looking at people's actual complaints about society and not take their core beliefs head on as much. This book... Uh, so far, has got a terrible review in Evening Standard, and the FT didn't like it at all. Um, so they, you know, they. Well, you're probably on
4: the side of the angels.
5: But well, I'm hoping. <laughs> I think the Guardian owe me. <laughs> 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 um, <laughs> owe oh, me, good
4: But but yeah. can we talk talk a bit more about the media and um, the way in which it blocks um, discussion of inequality?
5: Yeah. You I, and I, uh, you
4: and I both know sam pitsgarter who's um uh, an american um activist and campaigner who runs um a website called inequality.org and they they have a feature every week called petulant plutocrat of the week and they showcase you know some 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 rich guy who's been complaining and been a problem and um we don't have anything like that in the UK, do we? We, no. don't, we don't have a public discourse about the real problems that the rich causes.
5: No, and we have the opposite. You know, if any of you picked up the Evening Standard today or you have got it, have a look at the letters page. Uh, the lead letter, the big letter, is all about how terrible mansion tax would be for people with houses worth £5 million or more. And it ends with how these people help us get housed by not trying to live in our houses, but by living in their mansions. And, and The Evening Standard published this. Um, it almost makes you think The Evening Standard is owned by a multi-millionaire business person. Um, well, and even The Guardian uh, is, is kind of pretty lukewarm. We don't have a normal press for a normal European country where The Guardian would be in the middle and you'd have a load of papers to the other side. Because we don't have the politics for a normal European country where you'd have eight political parties, you know, and, and a fair degree of choice. Um I mean the Guardian recommended voting for the Liberals last time. Um The Guardian isn't isn't that much up in arms. So But it's partly a product, these things are chicken and egg. The more unequal you become, the worse your press becomes, the more it moves into supporting the current system and talking about it as good and your politicians behave the same way because they rely on donations from people with a lot of money more and more and they don't understand they're moving that way they think they're radical just as it's very easy in the guardian to think you're radical because you're paid a bit less than the other papers and there's nothing to the left (laughs) of you um and i see it more as a symptom of that way and when and if it changes it will change gradually with all papers moving and it did. To be fair to the Evening Standard, they, they have run a programme about poverty in London, which they wouldn't have done before. Uh, it's just that in the run-up to elections, they seem to go off these things and then come back again.
4: You sort of call for a slow revolution. I think that's the word mm. you use in your book. Um, you're expecting that things will move incrementally. How long do you think it's going to take? Okay. When are we going to look back and say, "Yeah, things really changed"? Your book's quite optimistic about this.
5: Yes, but it's not. Oh well, this is mainly based on what happened last time, okay. and history never history never repeats. But it's what happened after nineteen thirteen, and what happened in the nineteen twenties and thirties uh, to make us more equal. We, we'd gained half our equality by nineteen thirty nine, um, and it was. Paying for war, it was a need for high taxes and so on, so it was emergencies. But it was also a slow and steady change in attitudes. Uh, People like Beveridge wrote some pretty awful books around about, I think he actually wrote one in 1913, about the nature of women um, and and how to understand women. I may have got the date wrong, but it's the most amazing uh, book. And he was a eugenicist in the 1920s. He switched his views. Um, still a bit of a mild eugenicist, but became a much nicer man by the time he was the architect of the welfare <coughs> state. There was a banker called Oswald Fox, who was a friend of, of Keynes, and Keynes was a member of the 1%. And he said to Keynes, what you've really achieved isn't your great theory of economics, it's you, you've helped change the moral sentiment about what is decent and right in Britain. People in the 20s and 30s didn't realise these changes were happening. They were worried about mass unemployment. They were having a general strike. They were worried about a crash in 1929, and they were worried about the build-up of war. So it really wasn't until the 1950s and 1960s that we actually saw that we had moved in that direction. So a slow revolution isn't necessarily an uneventful one. It's it's an enormous shock to begin to move in a different direction to the direction we'd been moving up to 1913, when we are becoming more and more unequal, where the very, very rich landowners and the rich industrialists would be able to hire more and more servants than the year before. The most common job for women in the country around about 1913 was to work in service, and that was a result of incredible growths and inequality. So if you're, if you're looking at it today and you're looking for signs of this, they all appear pretty weak. it's good that they appear pretty weak because if they appear weak you get a sense that this might carry on people won't be accepting of them it won't be enough uh so the deputy governor of the bank of england today saying bankers are still paid too much the fact we haven't replaced bob diamond uh with a banker paid as much we haven't replaced the director general of the bbc with anybody paid well somebody paid half as much um there's all kinds of subtle changes that we tend not to notice because the world changed so much. We don't tend to be enamored by people getting a lot of wealth and showing it off in a way that we were in 2005. That's similar to what's happened in the past. A lot of people on the left want something faster. Uh, in general, apart from the very odd revolution, they're rare. The most frequent way in which something faster has ever occurred. Is a disaster like losing a war? Uh, Disasters are not impossible.
1: One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.
5: We will get some disasters. 2008, if you like, was a kind of a disaster. Uh, The oil crisis of the 1970s was a similar one that helped spark the change in the other direction. But I think... If you can be on a particular trajectory and you carry on being upset, it's not good enough. You're more likely to get it. I'll just give you one last example of of this or what it means to change the moral sentiment or what happens when you do. I made a huge mistake a few years ago of addressing a group just like you, but in Oslo, in a bookshop in Oslo. Uh, And I, I began my talk by saying, congratulations, you've got the lowest rate of child poverty in the world three people shouted out immediately, it's too high. Our rate of child poverty is too high. How dare you tell us? Congratulations. That's why Norway has the lowest rate of child poverty in the world. It's about what people think is right and, and decent. Um, And we had a similar trend to this in the 1930s amongst young people in the 1930s, rejected what their parents had believed, And what they'd gone through, partly because they saw mass unemployment and they saw stocks and shares not leading to ever greater wealth. And that generation who were brought up in the 1930s, who became middle-aged in the 40s and 50s, helped bring us greater equality because they had a change in belief. If we're seeing, in some ways, a similar change of belief now, then the effects are long because they affect the generation. Now, surveys tend to suggest that the young are getting more individualistic. But if you look at them in in other ways, um, you don't find that necessarily being reinforced. And the fashion can change quite quickly. Uh, You have 25 million unemployed young people in Europe. So it's a question of to what extent do these young people blame themselves for the fact they haven't got a job, despite the fact we've never had fewer young people, or they begin to blame the society into which they're born for the fact that so many are seen as so worthless. And if they have got a job, those jobs are incredibly low-paid and incredibly precarious in the majority of cases. While people blame themselves for being in that situation, you don't have a change in the moral sentiment. When you begin to get, it's not your fault you're in this situation, it's because of when you're born and what we allowed you to be born into, then you will begin to get a change. And I think that's for me what we need to talk about and to do the most. And to get away from winning the global race and the wealth creators, and some people are supremely talented, and just begin to see not quite a few people with those views with pity. Um, but don't tolerate people telling you that there are a tiny number of super label human beings and they create all the wealth that makes you rich. So it really doesn't wash.
4: Just before we open things up to um, the floor and ask ask for questions, um, you and I have, you know, a couple of things in in common. We're both state-educated, but we've moved probably close to the 1% by by being academically successful. What's it like being at Oxford now? After being at Sheffield for so much of your time as an academic, you know... You, you, you've moved really to the sort of centre of... Um,
5: the 1%. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah.
4: So so could you talk a little bit about your experiences of moving there and what it's felt like?
5: Okay, I'll end on that one. Um, it's very funny, but Britain's idea about places. Um, I grew up in Oxford, so it's worth saying, saying that, which is one reason that I went back there, because it's much easier to go back to live there if you can live in the half of the town that most other academics think they can't live in um it's cheaper i went to newcastle and people tend to think of newcastle as a poor town which it certainly was when i went in the 80s half the families didn't have any work but newcastle university took 80 percent of its students from private schools um it's and was a very posh university i end up in Sheffield, Sheffield is the castle on the hill, the university, the richest part of of the city, and takes in children with two A's and a B. But because it has the word Sheffield associated with it, it's. It, I was treated for 10 years there by the media as supposedly being northern and right on because I was from the University of, of Sheffield. Um, Oxford is a different world. Turning up into Oxford University is odd. Um, it's strange to turn into a city, but London's the same. Not a single uh, shop boarded up in Oxford, apart from a few in County Centre now. Sheffield that's one in three shops are boarded up when I left. Uh, students wearing funny uniforms, people having dinners, there being money for free food and wine is odd, and there are quite a lot of attitudes of elitism that are there, but they're amazingly curtailed. Um, People don't tend in your face, or at least not in my face, to tell me how wonderful the creme de la creme is. Um, And there's a lot of concern at the top of Oxford about the nature and direction of things. And you can see it in a way for who the fellows of various colleges have elected as a new, what's called heads of houses. So people like Will Hutton or the master of Orville, who used to work for, I think, around the social exclusion unit, uh, or Lynn Brindley, who used to the British Library. So there's a kind of people running Oxford colleges being brought in, elected by the fellows of the colleges who have progressive social agendas. And if you want to get really kind of um, optimistic about it, it's a sign of, of the elite being scared about the direction in which we are currently going. Um, the main issue for academics in Oxford is that they can't afford a house in Oxford. If you get yourself a permanent associate professor job, that's a job earning about 45 to 50,000 pounds a year, you will have problems renting. If you have a child, landlords in North Oxford won't rent to you because they don't need to rent to people with children. This is somebody with a permanent job and a permanent salary in a pretty safe university. Um, that situation is beginning to scare. Uh, people in a very established place. The other thing, well worth saying, is that Oxford and Cambridge, between them, educate 1% of all children. For centuries, this 1% were pretty safe. And for all of the last 100 years, this 1% were safe. They can't all get in the 1% because other people are getting into the 1% as well. But they can all certainly get into the 10%. But what happens since 2008 when the the rest of the top 10% isn't being looked after. And so simply going to Oxford or Cambridge at the age of 18 no longer sets you up for life necessarily in the way it used to. And I partly think when you get to that point, you're back to a chance of things changing in a very different way from 1960 students who kind of, has to be said, but failed given what happened after <coughs> the 60s. So what are the students in my college doing this week? On Friday, they've got Russell Brand coming to talk to them, right? And that's, you know, you can... Glad we haven't talked about Russell Brand.
4: No, we Um, meant to. You meant meant to. to, Sorry.
5: (laughs) But, you know, that is not normal Oxford University student behaviour to do, and they're not inviting him as some kind of joke or to laugh at. They're generally worried, because the finances houses until 2008 would give them jobs. The only way you can get in the 1% by the way, as an 18-year-old, is finance or law or management. Don't be a teacher, don't be a doctor. Oh, and economics, Economics. yes. Yeah, but economics into certain jobs. So these students are incredibly constrained. You might do engineering, but you can't be an engineer because it won't pay you enough, so you have to go into a tiny number of jobs that will get you that 160,000 so you can be like your parents. Those firms are no longer hiring the quantity of people they're hiring. I was told by, I'll just say, a very senior member of the university... I don't think the statistic is quite right, um, but it could be that one in 10 of our graduates last year went into teaching. That's an incredible amount. And the sad thing is that a lot of them are doing it because they think they're doing teach first, which kind of means teach for a little bit and then do your proper job rather than treat teaching as a proper job. But Oxford has never had a temp for its graduates go into teaching. Um, So this crisis is extending to some of the best-off families and best-off teenagers in the country, and it's when it gets to that point that you begin, I begin to think, it's possible, because the worry and the fear of precarity is spreading a long way, and there's only so much you can insulate to yourself and your family by your wealth, the proportion of people who have enough wealth to create and maintain over a generation. Their own mini welfare state is very, very small.
4: Thanks, Danny. Um, can we can we open it up to the floor for some questions now? I'm going to take um, maybe three or so. I'm going to take this gentleman there and there. First three hands up. Thank you.
3: i uh, Professor Darling. Thank you very much. Um, I I guess you've as a young Russian person who's found out that they're not in the 1% I guess I'm officially disappointing um, so um, but um, so I, I wanted to uh, touch a little bit on, on something you, you've said about um, uh, kind of uh, moral and ideological changes and and also the, the, the changing nature of public schools and elite education and that is um, whereas before I think it was public schools were expensive places for you know dumb, rich people Um, whereas now there are expensive places that are also very meritocratic and where there is becoming a conflation between people who are wealthy and also people who are brilliant, uh, very driven uh, highly successful at their subjects and um, this idea of meritocracy and fairness in some ways that excellence is rewarded properly um, you have that on the one side and social justice on the other. is one project undermining the other um, the idea of Gender equality, yeah. more women are, are, are being allowed to join the elite. Is that John undermining Peck, Peck. the idea of kind of yeah. an anti elitist uh, situation? Uh, and, and I guess, uh, how, how do we go, how do we decouple that? Um, yeah. In some ways, maybe the class system was helping us previously.
4: Thank you. Can we, can we go to the next question? We're going to take two or three. One, two. Oh, right? Yeah. Next to each other.
6: Oh, this is probably a very dumb question. How has it got that the educational background of the present cabinet is the same as it was in my childhood 60 years ago? What happened to all these grammar school boys and girls like Edward Heath and Margaret Thatcher? Thank you.
4: And there was a question, yep. yeah, next to you. Thank you.
6: Yeah, I mean, to me, it would suggest actually that the politics has to change from looking at pure economics and everything fitting into an economic model to actually dealing with the issues that everybody faces in trying to get through every day. Yes.
4: Thank you very much. Do you want to take those three, Danny, before yeah. we take some more?
5: That's in a reverse order. Mm. I would agree with you every day. I, I would like to see a political party, and the obvious one would be Labour, but I'm not a member of any party, uh, produce a pledge card, which was very simple. Do you remember they did five pledges before? Yeah. Uh, but these pledges will be much more basic. Um, one, you will not go hungry and you will not need a food bank. Two, you will have a roof over your head. Three, your ch- child will have a place at school. Four, your hospital will stay open and provide basic... basic provisions and so on Uh, A five and i tried with john Cudders just to get him to say in the manifesto for the labor party at the end of a five-year term there will be no longer any need for food banks and he, he said he thought that might be a bit ambitious
2: um
5: but i think we should in a time of austerity with a chance of a second european crisis let alone anything else just give a very very basic bottom line safety net promise just cheap um that's cheap to do uh the education turnaround um i mean it's interesting it was from that time of rising equality that our politicians came from a wider set of began to come from a wider set of backgrounds um and it it's not because the grammar schools went uh the comprehensive schools have not yet had their chance so i'm from there was a huge increase in comprehensives in the 1970s, when something like 25% of all schools to 80% within a decade, uh, and a few more that yes, a few more at the end. So, th- so the earliest of the mass comprehensive generation are my age.
4: Yeah, I, w- uh, I was yeah. first comprehensive intake in my school.
5: Yeah, yeah. So, um, that's there. We have reverted back in in an incri- quite an incredible way. I think it's partly chance. Um you know because if if you were doing this by conspiracy, you'd put in more token none eaten people uh yeah. in there, but they oh, in... no. yes, <laughs> <laughs> charge Yes or not not her majesty's conference schools and so on, and call them oiks. Um, but this is a very small clique i mean essentially turn up I went to Newcastle in 1986. If I'd gone to Oxford in 1986, I'd have turned up with Cameron being a year older than me, Osborne being a year younger, a vet there going out with Miliband and then Balls. They were all there. Um, they wouldn't
4: have let you join their club, though, Danny.
5: I have this idea that, I don't know, I won't go into it. Um, <laughs> well, no, I would have had to join a lay party. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you had to join the political party that fitted your background. And then they you thought you're terribly well on. But, but your question is a really interesting question about this problem of extreme meritocracy. Thomas Piketty called it extreme meritocracy. Um, you can justify incredibly high salaries. This, these are the 10, 12 million pound salaries because they equate to the interest which is earned by the very wealthiest in the world who are doing nothing but just getting that. So the only way you can make it fair, if you are the most productive head of a large computer firm, how do you work out what your salary should be? You look at the modern-day equivalent of um, the Vanderbilt family and how much money the young, oldest member of the Vanderbilt gets from their interests, and you say, that's what I should get. And it's partly because we've seen this extreme meritocracy rise that people justify these very high salaries at the top, and that's linked to the fact that the schools, the top schools, have become more selective on intake at 13, and then they did a special thing of allowing scholars in at 16 to bump up their A-level scores because they're so worried about how they're going to rank. And then you have this change in that these children think, well, I've been tested, I've been selected, so I am special. Um, I few years ago, I did a series of talks in schools, uh, in, in a whole set of different schools. And interestingly, I didn't get the most vicious kind of answers in the most expensive schools because they still included enough old money that kind of civilized the new money, uh, children, old money knows about, you know, even if you have these views about people, you do not say them publicly, you know, and if your family can go back to William the Conqueror, you've learned how to, how to behave. Uh, the most vicious views I got about meritocracy were actually in Birmingham, in one of the grammar schools in Birmingham, from 16-year-olds who simply, they'd been selected at 11, their school was full of people who'd only passed the 11 plus, nobody was there because they were rich, it was pure meritocracy, and you were going to get in life what you deserve to get because you worked hard. And amongst 16-year-olds, it's unadulterated. Get to 18 or 19, it's a bit more... Um, change this situation is so different from a lot of Europe well all of Europe in Europe they have very very few private schools actually in rest of Britain apart from the southeast they have very few in Sheffield only two percent of our children went to private schools one percent in South Yorkshire there were six comprehensives in Sheffield that did better than the top boys private school um, the whole of Sheffield then does better than the whole of Bristol as a result of that. Um, In Europe, you have this tiny number. Finland's the extreme country where it has the most comprehensive education and the highest exam results in Europe. Or just to end on one, if you talk to somebody in Germany, I was trying to compare Bonn and Oxford. These are twin cities. Uh, The teacher is a school teacher from Bonn. This was last week. First of all, found it very, very hard to rank the schools, because there were not published league tables in Germany, and all the schools did pretty well. And then he managed to come out with, the, well, I think it's the Beethoven Academy or something, state school at the top. And we could equate that to the Dragon School in Oxford, 35,000 a year. And then the next one, and we could equate that to Modernley College, 35,000 a year, uh, and so on. And it was so different. And I asked him about actually private schools in Germany. And he said, well, yes, we have got one. It's for slow boys, and it's the one, it's the one where Prince Philip went to. <laughs> that's, and that's a normal European educational system, or also quite a normal system in, in most states in the USA, um, where they made the brilliant invention that we should have copied of calling them high schools. There's absolutely no need to use a word like comprehensive. Beverly Hills High is a comprehensive... These are high schools, and we should have done that. One,
4: two, and three. Thanks. And then I'll get to the back of the room, I promise, in the next set of questions.
7: The question, it seems to me, about inequality is whether it's a cause or an effect, because we could be blaming the rich in the way we blame the poor for an economic system which is greater than their agency. And I sometimes picture to myself, politically, with a very left-of-center perspective, and I'm sure in agreement with the kind of stuff I've read of yours and Kate's in the past, were I an advisor, and I'm an active Labour local campaigner in Peterborough, chair of the Fabian Society in Peterborough, if I had access to Ed Miliband, a fellow comprehensive school pupil, what would I actually say to him to position himself? What alternative narrative can he draw upon than the shallow crowd appeal stuff that he's trying now? I'm genuinely shocked by what you've said by John Crudders, but I suppose we shouldn't be surprised. They can't even promise an end to the food banks. That's the extent to which the system is broken, and all the way through the system is broken – government no longer cares about the welfare of the people that's not the doing of the rich that's a power system that is broken yeah
6: thank you danny hi thank you very much for your talk um can i just ask you you've been long on complaint and and short on solutions i mean i'm not having a go here but i'm i'm you know it's all very well moaning about this and i and i some of the um tone of what you're saying is like this sort of evil conspiracy by these dreadful one percent like they're all sort of on the phone to each other cackling and trying to think how they can do everyone else down yeah. obviously there is unmerited um excessive pay and obviously that that is that is not justified at all but um you know what we're talking about is the introduction of increased competition in british society since since the 80s and i guess the, the question is what what is your alternative how are you going to run the world differently and also the fact that a lot of the, the, the issues driving this the increased inequality are sort of impersonal factors to do with globalization. So it's you know the fact that you've got if you've got a skill you can sell it on a global market you can drive up your so at the top end of the price salary range you can command more. Equally, it's very soft cultural stuff. Graduates are increasingly marrying each other, and therefore you get this educated elite. So what are you going to do? Tell people who they can and can't marry? I mean, it's Sing- what what are your solutions?
4: Yeah.
5: Sorry, yeah. can I? Or we've got.
4: Can yeah. I do those two, because that's quite... Yeah, we, we did have one over here, but Danny would like to take those two, because they're quite meaty. Quite, a lot,
5: quite meaty. Yeah. Um, yeah, I apologise for not, for not going through solutions. My worry is we won't get to any solutions if we don't think it's a problem. At the, mo- at the moment, not enough people think it's a problem. There are lots of, of uh, solutions. The one that Piketty goes for, which I agree, I agree with, is higher rates of tax on very high incomes... Um, not to raise money but to deter people from taking a million two three or five hundred thousand pounds I would take council tax and simply band it upwards rather than have a mansion tax uh, that deters people from buying housing simply as an investment there's all kinds of things you can do once you decide that you want to reduce inequalities in income and wealth as yet we do not have a major political party all the minor ones uh, SNP the Greens and so on have this uh, but we don 't have a major political party which explicitly says it wants to see a reduction it 's not the fault of the one percent it's it 's the one percent are increasingly born into a system where you 'd have to be an absolute kind of gene- actually genetically unusual genius if you 're born into one of these wealthy families to work out your part of the problem. The 1% are controlled by the whole of society, which is by the other 99%. It's not globalization because all these other countries in exactly the same global world manage to control these things. Although increased globalization makes it harder, which we had before 1913. We had a massive globalization of world trade before 1913. That actually reduced after the First World War. So it does make it harder. Uh, you certainly don't tell people who they can marry. But what you do is you notice that we were never freer to marry, well, in the opposite sex at least, uh, to marry who we wanted than in the 1950s, 60s and 70s. Uh, My favourite example is Lady Chatterjee's Lover, (coughs) actually becoming, you know, it's a book banned in the 1920s because it's about sex between a gardener and a lady. And that trial in the 1960s epitomised how the world had changed. The 1% had so much less in the 1960s and 70s that the barrier to falling in love with somebody and then marrying them was much less. You don't force people to do that, but a society that comes together no longer has a situation in which a lot of people are simply off limits because they're too poor. Uh, the best-off tenth of children in this city have a hundred times the wealth of the poorest tenth. They, they, they rarely mix. Um But I could go for other... There are lots of little solutions you can begin to do to tip it, but you're wish has to be to do that uh, another is you should have a, an aim that house prices and rents in the long term should be coming down towards the average in germany uh, that has a huge effect where it raises everybody's income if the cost of housing reduces that's a way of of improving your standard of living without the country having to get richer it disbenefits a few people at the top only two percent of people are landlords only a fraction of those are highly successful landlords, but that's part of the 1%, and they would become poorer. People whose wealth was tied up in homes they owned outright that was worth 5 or £6 million pounds, would become poorer. But you have to have that as an aspiration, and then it's not that hard uh, to begin to do it. Kate Green, who is a Labour, maybe even a government adviser uh, on the Monetary Policy Committee, has advocated capital gains tax on housing. So on your primary residence as a way to begin this madness of housing uh, escalation now so there's loads you could do but i go on about the problems of attitude because we're not going to begin to touch any of these things well even though the labor policy is i do not mind how much the rich have as long as they pay their taxes the one percent are currently paying a third of all income tax we could head up to a situation where they're paying half of it and that would be okay by labor as long as they paid their taxes um Yeah, Miliband's in a in a bit of a pickle and a mess over this, over what he says. He cannot say, because for so long... Well, he's not brave enough to say, and the people around him are not brave enough to say, because we've been going in this trajectory for so long, to do something different would be so radical. So he can't say house prices and rents should reduce by 1% a year for the next 30 years till we get to a normal European level. Um, he cannot say we'll have a commitment to a decent living wage by a certain time. He cannot say that 1% should at least have 10%, not 15% of all income, and we should worry while it's above that level. Um, the Labour government of the 60s had at least six able individuals at the top, Barber Castle, Healy, as well as Wilson and so on. And I, I think it would be easier if there were six of them this time with that kind of Stomach behind them, but going back further, if you want to go back to that to that change around about nineteen thirteen and just before, you had politicians like Lord George. Lord George, and what Lord George did was address mass public meetings, thousands of people, and he waved one book in the air. He had his equivalent of Margaret Thatcher's Road to Serfdom, and his book was Seaborn Roundtree's Poverty and Town Life, published in nineteen oh one. Politicians have have done this before. What Lloyd George did, where bringing in pensions and so on, was quite incredible. Um, But it happened at a time of incredible inequality that was part of a beginning of a change that then tipped over. Politicians in the past have been progressive. They have switched things. And they've also been anti-progressive and highly effective. Keith Joseph, Margaret Thatcher, Norman tebbit you know, that little group were highly organized and highly effective but that's the last time any group of politicians actually altered the trajectory you can't you cannot see um when we had elections in terms of the inequality trajectory uh since 1979 they were the last group who had that effect and and like i said earlier it wasn't just them it was partly support of the electorate to the southeast of england as well
4: so we obviously need everybody going out and no, no. waving a book. Um, can we take some more questions, please? So gentlemen over here. There's a lady right at the back in, in a red shirt. And have I got a third? Oh sorry. <laughs> I do apologize. <laughs> I think I think it's the red blouse. Um, Do we have a third question? Yeah, thank you. Lady at the front. So,
0: here first. Uh, You mentioned uh, Thomas Piketty in fairly favourable terms a couple of times, but uh, I see a couple of differences between his analysis and approach and yours, which I'd I'd welcome your sort of comment. Um, It seems to me that Piketty, for different reasons, a bit like Marx, but he actually sees the sort of economic structure as one that... Uh, naturally um, leads to increasing concentration of wealth. Um, So doesn't that sort of counter against your argument that, well, all we have to do is sort of sit back and uh, the soft revolution will come and change perceptions will be enough to sort of uh, change the direction that we're travelling in? And the second is uh, you stress the difference between the UK and Europe, but uh, I mean, Pickett's data doesn't it suggest that uh, this is at least European-wide this increasing inequality and the increasing uh, wealth of the one percent? But I notice you 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 draw a pretty big distinction.
4: Thank you.
2: Oh yeah. Uh, Hi, Danny. Um, I wanted to ask you why you're so um, calm and reasonable and moderate about the things that you you talk about, and you talk about them so articulately and persuasively. Um, I'm a school teacher, and I I teach at a school in Westminster where the students actually come from the poorest parts of... the, The wards are the poorest parts of London, and the school is in the heart of St. John's Wood, so these kids come from the poorest parts of London and walk through some of the wealthiest streets of London every day to, to come to school they pass houses they'll never be able to buy uh, cars that they'll never be able to buy and so on and so forth and you said when you were talking that you hoped that or maybe you thought that it was possible that people who sent their kids to private schools might come to realise that private education was wrong I mean I, I'd call private education evil and completely unacceptable morally there is just nothing to justify it. And I think it lies at the heart of a lot of the problems that you talk about with regards to inequality. So I just wondered what your thoughts were on private education. Thank you.
5: Uh, Piketty. Uh, I mean, Piketty's a pretty middle of the road, mild mannered economist. And that's what's quite incredible about his book, because it's somebody who's who says at one point how much he hates communism, because his reason is because he turned 18 in 1989. It doesn't seem to be the best reason in the world. Um, but the, the important thing about Piketty is a very, very well-respected economist says we've got a major problem that's it's getting worse. Uh, where I disagree with him is that he really only has about 100 years of good data, and for most of those 100 years, we were actually getting more equal. So to call that the abnormality is odd if you look at the record and we've got very scanty records before that last 100 years we've got kind of the price of bread and average wages it fluctuates it was not a continuous state of very high inequality it fluctuates and if you look across the world of course the USA was one of the most equal places in the world in 1850 mm-hmm. so at Piketty's, we were always very unequal and then we had this sudden you know abnormality and now we're back to normal is a very french english you know kind of Look on the world, and it doesn't even work for France and England. Um,
4: Do you think he's possibly going to be the most best-selling book that nobody reads?
5: He'll be nowhere. He's got to compete with Stephen Hawkins.
4: Okay.
5: Um, but it's interesting how he was obviously told just to put one equation in, and, and yeah. Hawkins had two. <laughs> um, and it's all the reviews are written on the first twenty pages. Yeah. If you read them, it was yeah. quite, it's quite incredible. How has shame. anybody
4: here read Piketty? Well done. One, two, yeah. three. There, Has anybody bought it, but not yet read it? Yeah. Oh, many more hands. Yeah. There, there
5: is a brilliant 20 page summary that you can buy that really <laughs> does, does tell you. Um, <laughs> it's not free online yet. Uh, that's, <laughs> I'll end with Piketty there, but I, and he ignores these countries in which the 1% have taken uh, less and thinks that, that they are somehow a non um why don't i get more angry i get angry at times that there are other things that make me particularly angry not just inequality um i get very angry about roads and road crashes we won't get into that but i have um other things i've been doing this for so long i'm so used to it i've been looking at inequality for 25 years um and has a danger of making you a bit stale and not angry. I find myself suddenly shocked. I was shocked coming back to Oxford to find teachers in one of the schools buying food for the food bank inside their school. Uh, and that is very near to colleges which are throwing away food from their high tables. Um, so I can get jolted out of my complacency. Um, we and Kate differ on the private. She doesn't know this. Uh, we, we differ on the private schools. Private schools are just massively inefficient and a very bad idea in segregating children.
4: How do we differ?
5: Oh, wait. We differ because I, I wouldn't take away their tax benefit. And I'll just tell you why. Okay. You would, I know. Uh, I wouldn't take away the charitable status of private schools because I think there's a real danger in turning them into profit-making businesses. Because there is a, a aim, Milton Friedman put it, to privatise the entire education system. And so, at the moment, Westminster is a charity. So Westminster School doesn't have an interest in creating another 100 Westminster schools. Take away its charitable tax status and it just could be dangerous. i just chuck that in the show we don't agree on see, everything.
4: I, I would actually just make them completely illegal. I would say all children have to be educated in the state system. Yeah. And... Um,
5: you you would I'm and
4: that's what that's why I will never be elected to public office. You won't. Office.
5: <laughs> you won't. There's, there's two and this is a sort of liberal hippie well hippie. There are these Montessori things and these the other things that some people like and I or forest schools or whatever, and it would be hard to have those. Um but also, you know, in London now twenty percent of people are going to private schools. In Oxford twenty eight percent at any one time. 40% of the children in the city have touched a private school at one point in their life. In in this room it'll be 25% of you. You never chose to go, your parents chose to go. Mm. And that's that's the world in which we're living in. We need we need to get to a situation where our grandchildren are going to state schools except for some odd experiment in the forest of somebody who wants to do something strange. <laughs> um I was asked this question I actually did a talk at Eton, and my stock answer to this, which I couldn't tell the 16-year-old at Eton because he looked like he was going to cry, was the one thing private schools give you is at least some diversity. For instance, they might make boys wear some kind of mock coat from the 18th century. But as he was wearing it, and he was already on the edge of crying, I didn't do it. Um, But anyway, let's leave. We just should... We should be in the situation that they're in in France and Italy and Germany. Just look at those countries and not the situation they're in in California, where it's gone up to twelve percent
4: can we look at Finland
5: well Finland yeah,
4: thank you
5: in finland where ninety nine percent of children might actually be illegal in finland it is it illegal. is illegal in Finland um and they pay the teachers well, they don't examine them and they all do and they all do very oh, well kids do really really well they well, and they all take their shoes off and wear socks all day, which is.
4: Irrelevant. Not, irrelevant. Irrelevant. <laughs> irrelevant, but
5: <laughs> nice. Um, but that's where you want to get to. You want to get to a situation where you go to school with the children in your neighbourhood so that you can be friends with them. It's, it's not Okay, it's but,
4: but let's hold on that. Why is it be. so unacceptable in our society today for me or you to say, actually private education should be outlawed it should become impossible to do and we ought to have a national conversation like finland had in the 1970s or whatever. i'm gonna
5: invite you to oxford that's and... fine oh please don't you, you... <laughs> we're there to talk um to put it
4: you know cause, I, I've said... how, how many people here would want to take part in that kind of conversation and, and, all of us. I mean,
5: we, we might have well, different and points of view. No, how, how many wouldn't? You have to do... No? no. Um, the saddest thing in Oxford is watching all the new European academics come in. We're hiring from around the world now. So the majority of new hires are not English. They're from mainland Europe, from countries which don't have private schools. And what do the academics do when they turn up? They ask the other academics, the vast majority of whom send their children to private schools, and they quietly go and do what their family never did before – and on a wage which won't pay for them to be housed, they then go and try and find school fees. It, it's a madness, but there's, there's two ways out of it. One way is to begin to spend a little bit more on our state schools. We begin to spend less again, so the buildings are starting to fall down again, let alone everything else. And the second thing is you reduce the wealth of the 1% and those just beneath them, which happened in 2008. And in 2008, a, a very large... No, a significant number of private schools nationalised themselves by becoming academies because the parents could no longer pay the fees. If you create a more equal country, you'll get fewer private schools. If you fund our schools as well as they fund in mainland Europe, you'll get rid. And we we could see this problem go. We almost did after the Second World mm. War. Um, it was possible after the Second World War and then, and then we mugged it up. I must answer your question.
4: Last one and okay. then we're done.
5: Thank you. It's last one. Uh, you, you're not... You're not going to get empathy between the top 1% and the bottom 5%. The only time you have that are things like when you get an earthquake and people find themselves all in the same situation or, again, in the aftermath of war when they did. Uh, But you don't necessarily need that. What you need is empathy between the top 1% and 5% in the middle. That is enough um, to get you a, a better increase in society. There is one last thing to end on or one tragedy about a place like Japan. Um, traditionally, people say you must worry about people at the bottom and you must get rid of poverty and you must take them up and your society be better. What this evidence about the top 1% suggests is that that doesn't tend to help. It's when you let get the rich, take a smaller slice of the cake that everybody else does better. The really problem in Japan is that the bottom 1% and only the bottom 1% in Japan do really badly. They are, and there's a small group, but they are homeless. There is no welfare state in Japan unless you get all your relatives to sign a letter saying they will not support you. Um, but it, it shows that you can actually be really nasty at the bottom. And this is the danger of this. So I'm telling you, don't spread this particular message, but it's part of the interest. Japanese society has not become a 90% middle class by being particularly nice to people at the bottom. It's become a 90% middle class with the highest life expectancy by curtailing the greed of people at the top. There are more people paid over a million pounds a year in Barclays Bank here, just down in Canary Wharf. More, more people paid more than a million pounds a year than there are in the whole of Japan. Japanese society somehow works very well without having to supposedly buy in the brightest and the best from around the world. But it's not utopia, and you can see that from how people at the very bottom are treated. Thank you very much. Thanks, Daniel. Thank you.
2: Thank you for joining us for this London Review Bookshop event. For more, visit our website at www.londonreviewbookshop.co.uk or search for the London Review Bookshop on iTunes.